0: Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading from verses 4 and 5 this morning. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So, uh, you know, when we're doing the Beatitudes or any verse, if it's one or two, to save paper, I don't print them out. I will on the longer passages. So make sure you have your Bible. If not, there's a Bible at the end of the pew. You can use that um, as we look at these and go back and forth. Uh, for those of you who are here a couple of weeks ago, we started this, um, this incredible teaching by our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. One that I imagine many of you have heard already, preached on. You've studied it yourself. But by God's grace, you will hear him teach you, reveal to you, convict you if necessary, and then cause you to respond with a yes, amen to what Christ was actually saying. And last week, week we jumped into the first beatitude, and that was poverty in spirit. And by God's grace, you understood that that was not a lot of the things that are often taught, but it has to do with the total depravity of who we are before a holy God. And indeed, that the kingdom of heaven had already come upon those that Christ was talking to that day. And then he progresses and he talks about those who mourn and those who are meek. And we'll see that there's a, there's a natural, or I should say supernatural, progression through the Beatitudes that Christ uses to teach and to reveal. But when you first read, if you were listening to Kurt when he was reading, when you first read 4 and 5, and even some of the others they sound paradoxical at best, if not ridiculous. I mean, you can't read verse 4. It says, blessed are those who mourn and not go, what? Because mourning is not good. We don't like it. Or better yet, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The response should be, really? Really. Because the world tells me and my experiences tell me that I'm blessed if I do not mourn. Because when I'm mourning, I'm grieving. When I'm grieving, I'm not happy. When I'm not happy, I'm not happy. How is this a blessed state? Right? And my the world and my experiences tell me that the powerful and the rich and the famous, they're the ones that inherit the earth, not the meek, not the mild. So we read this, and if you read it right off and you go, Yes, of course, then you're either lying to yourself, you know, you are spiritually wise beyond your years. Or you've been taught something that doesn't make a lot of sense. Because these are paradoxical to us. And should be approached as such. I mean there's one thing that we can all agree on. That the world and very much the church today. Tries everything it can to not mourn. I mean we do all kinds of creative things. To make sure that if we're mourning. The mourning stops quickly. And then everything we can do to not mourn at all. If at all possible to avoid it. We come up with all kinds of silly little catchphrases like, look on the bright side. How does, that, how does that help your morning? Not your morning as in this morning, but your morning process. When someone uses a catchy, like uh, look on the bright side or be positive. <laughs> I, I I'll laugh. Think happy thoughts. You're mourning. They're not happy thoughts. You're grieving. So just change the way you think, right? We have entire, an entire industry that is bent an organizational structure with money and entertainment and power to keep us from mourning at all. In fact, in the last century, during most of our wars, the government spent millions of dollars trying to make sure that those who were here at home while our fathers and brothers were fighting overseas in a hideous war, they tried to make sure that we were happy, that we were happy, that we were entertained, that we weren't mourning to keep up the morale. And so we create a perception of reality that's not so real. And yet Jesus is blessed are those who mourn. And if mourning is avoided like the plague, then being meek of heart is certainly thought to be both foolish and weak in our culture and something that will not enable you to inherit anything, let alone the earth, meek and mild. I mean, it's the exact opposite of the natural man. Someone says, how do you be a success? Power, money, influence drive. Do whatever you can to get on top. People become expendable to get to your goals. And so the natural man will hear this and go, you've got to be kidding me. Meekness is the opposite of what will get you an inheritance that you really want. Now, if you hear this and go, well, it doesn't make sense in light of our day, but maybe it did in light of Jesus' day, they would have heard it as being equally ridiculous. The Jews and the Romans looked at meekness... As weakness. How did the Romans conquer? With the sword. What were the Jews waiting for? A Messiah to come back. With a sword. Right? They wanted the Messiah. Their kingdom come. The very people that Christ was talking about. Their kingdom come. Was a Messiah coming from heaven with the sword to crush the Romans and reestablish the Davidic reign. Right? So... Meekness was not looked upon then or now as something that would be a divine attribute or something that God's people should look at and embrace and live out. Both these teachings, mourning and meekness, were rejected then and both are rejected today by the culture and grievously so by the church as well, by many in the church. Biblical mourning and biblical meekness, once evidenced in the Christian life, has been replaced with a superficial joy and and a really bad, ecclesiastically approved form of pride. And the result is a poor testimony to the world. But we must, by God's grace, hear Christ teach on mourning, hear Christ teach on meekness, and we must submit, and we must come under, and we must hear this beatitudes, both these being taught, and say yes, amen, and follow. If we have a desire to minister to those in our mission field, as we talked about several weeks ago, If we have a desire to be the people that God's called us to be, then we must understand mourning and understand meekness and live in accordance with it. So let's start there, all right? Just three things this morning. I want us to walk out of here saying, okay, what was Christ talking about when he talked about mourning? What was it? What did he mean? Two, what did he mean when he talked about meekness? And three, the ultimate question, how are either of those blessed? (laughs) How are they blessed? How can mourning possibly be blessed? How can meekness possibly be a blessed state? Let's look at those three things. Are you ready? Are you excited? Because I'm a little excited here. Are you excited or not? All right. Yes? All right. So you got to know. You study all week. You pray all week. And it just culminates. And, then it, and it has to come out. So, you know, if, if I had preached this on Wednesday, there would have been a little more temperance. But you made me wait till Sunday, okay? So next time, call me and say, let's do this on Tuesday or Wednesday. And it will be a little more tempered. First point, what Jesus is talking about in regards to mourning. The word in the Greek is pantheo, and it literally means to grieve or to wail in grief. Okay, so it's not just this sense of sadness. It's grief, internal, deep grief. Mourning is a supernatural response to the first beatitude, and that is knowing and seeing that you're poor in spirit, that you're totally depraved, that you have no righteousness of your own. The right response to that understanding and revelation is mourning. It's grief. Over who you are before a holy God. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 7. It is better to go to a house of mourning. Than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. And then he says the living should take this to heart. Death is the destiny of every man and the living should take this to heart. During the puritanical movement of the 17th century the puritans they took passages like Ecclesiastes 7:2 and Matthew chapter 5 verse 4 and they said you know what this is how we're supposed to be. And so within not the entire puritanical movement, but Puritans, several of them adopted a non-gospel, non-Christ-centered approach toward mourning. And they became people that were long-faced people. Their a relationship, their appearance, and their posture before the, the world was a state of mourning, a perpetual state of mourning. Perverted. Not of Christ, not of the gospel. The problem today is that we've reacted to it and we're still reacting to it. In that the contemporary American church would never be said a church that mourns too much. If anything, we mourn too little or we don't mourn at all. The contemporary American church has the the reaction of that, which we're still seeing today, permeate the church. Is one of a superficial joy and a superficial gaiety. Where mourning is discouraged because we mourn throughout the week. We don't want to mourn on Sunday. And you know what? Mourning's not going to bring people into the church. You talk about mourning and sin, and you talk about grief over spiritual poverty, that's not going to get people in the pews, and we want people in the pews or chairs, or wherever we call them today, right? But our lack of proper mourning regarding sin and its wicked counterpart, superficial joy, is the result of a double failure in our understanding God's word. Because we no longer in the church talk about sin and talk about the consequences of sin and talk about the destructive nature of sin, there is no reason to mourn because we don't even know that we're in a state that we should be mourning over. We're no longer preaching a real, deep, right conviction of sin, and therefore the church has become a mournless church. Now, it doesn't mean that we just stay like that. It creates a vacuum. And what does the vacuum bring in? The vacuum brings in superficial joy, superficial levity, and happiness, where sin is looked at more as a nuisance, not a death sentence. And the good life or the joyful life is something that we can obtain by following 10 easy steps to the better life or the best life now. And the result superficial relationships an inadequate Christian testimony to a fallen world that's dead in their sins and transgressions, and a church that lacks power. If we we do not recognize that we should mourn the sin of our lives, and we replace it with superficial joy, then the church loses its power. In fact, a major Christian organization, which I will not name, but you can ask me later, Recently listed, listen, they listed and they endorsed the top ten characteristics of a growing church. Now, most of these surveys, when they're done, they're not talking about growth spiritually. They're talking about growth numerically. Okay? The top ten characteristics identified and supported by this organization. You know what the number one characteristic of a growing church is today? Top of the list. And if I gave it to you and I gave you a survey, I, I would hope that most of you would get it wrong based upon what they said. Number one, top of the list, a positive spirit of excitement. A positive spirit, I'm not making this up. A positive spirit of excitement is the number one characteristic of a growing church. So the pastors read this and say, You want a growing church? You better have a positive spirit of excitement Sundays and Wednesdays, whenever you gather. I just got one question where is that in Scripture? Show me one verse that says to the church, have a positive, exciting spirit whenever you gather. And I'm not saying that there won't be those times, but that's number one. That's top of the list. I visited a church last July, a large church in our area. And when I came in, I mean, it's big. It's big. <laughs> they, had, they had three Thread, three life-size screens video screens and there were lights and there was music and it was it was exciting i mean it was there was entertainment the sermon was filled with jokes and people were laughing and and it was it was a positive exciting experience but when i left we got in the car i go where was christ where was the gospel where was there any discussion of sin or repentance or ha- where was it I don't know, but the kid said, it was exciting. It was. You left kind of like, uh, where are we going now? I don't even know what to do. we got to go, go for a walk or something. Positive, exciting spirit. The American church wants joy, but no conviction. Right? We want the joy, but we don't want to be convicted. We want comfort, but we don't want to mourn. And we want happiness, but we don't want sorrow. And the Bible says it's absolutely impossible. You can't have any of those without its opposite. First and foremost, here's why. Those who are truly saved by grace, who have been brought into the kingdom of heaven, as we saw last week, you see Christ. You see his glory. You see his majesty. In fact, the closer you draw to the Holy One, to the majestic one, to the Almighty God, the more you see how fallen you are. And if anything, as your life with Christ progresses, until he comes again or until he takes you home, there's going to be increased mourning, not less. Because you see him more clearly. And the more clearly you see him, the more clearly you see yourself. And the more you go, oh, I am a sinner. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, he articulates this perfectly. In Romans chapter 7, many of you know this passage. He says, for what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil that I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He's mourning He's mourning who he is. God's holy, I'm not. And the closer he gets to God, the more unholy he sees himself. He mourns. Any type of reflection, day or night, any type of spiritual introspection should bring about mourning and then repentance. And if there isn't, if you're examining yourself, as the Bible says, if you're testing yourself, as the Bible says, and you're good, I mean, you're good. You're good. Lord, it's amazing how well I'm doing. It's amazing how good I am in your eyes. It's amazing that I'm surrounded by all these unholy, wicked people. And yet I am so good. You are not seeing Christ. Because it will produce mourning. It is the right response to our spiritual poverty. A right response. But it's not just personal. There's a global sense to this as well. In that we will mourn the condition of this broken world. If you look upon the world, if you look upon your family and friends and you have disregard or disgust, that's the response to the brokenness of fallen man and the brokenness of this world, then you're not seeing Christ clearly either. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they mourn over God's good creation gone bad. They mourn that. They look upon how life is and how the world is, and they too, with creation, groan together for its restoration, for it to be made right. On a daily basis, I know you do, and I do as well. On a daily basis, we encounter a lack of integrity in people. On a daily basis, we encounter injustice. We encounter cruelty. We encounter jealousy and strife. All these things, you, you experience it at work. You experience it at home. You experience it in the church. Yes, in the church. And if the response to that is anything but a sense of mourning the sin that's made its way into God's good creation, and a prayer to God that he would restore and make things right, then once again we're missing this kingdom citizenship. If you read the newspaper, 15 killed by suicide bomber, or if you read that your congressional representative just went and spent all of his campaign fund money illegally at the same time as he was sleeping with his staff member, and it doesn't bother you, if you look upon this valley and you see the rat race to make money, get rich, and be secure, then we're not seeing it as Christ sees it. If you look upon the world and its brokenness, and there isn't a sense of mourning that we're missing the very heart of our Lord himself. Jesus Christ, in Luke chapter 19, fantastic. He looks upon Jerusalem. He approached Jerusalem and he saw the city. And what did he do? Ugh, disgusting. These people, they make me sick. Is that what he said? He comes upon Jerusalem and he says, ah, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? They're a mess. I can't help them. He comes upon Jerusalem and the Bible says he saw the city and he wept. He wept. He mourned. Why? He said, if you, even you, listen to the tenderness of his words, had only known on this day He knew the consequences of the rebellion. He knew what lay in store for them, their future. He knew it was destruction. He knew it was pain. Broken families, broken relationships, a broken city. And ultimately in 70 AD, a city that was no more. He knew this. And he mourned because he was a realist. And the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is a realist as well. In fact, I can go one step further. Only Christians... Are people who walk this planet and see reality clearly only Christians? Only Christians know ultimate reality in God, and therefore they mourn properly. And and we'll look at that. There's a proper proper way to mourn. The world laughs at what we know to be true. They, They take everything that's serious and turn it into a joke. I mean, I can't can't tell you how oftentimes my ears burn when I'm reading or hearing an advertisement or a commercial and something that's so grievous to God is turned by the world as something that's humorous or made light of. Young people striving for sexual purity today laughed at. Families trying to make real good decisions with their children and how to raise them on that narrow path and possibly bring them home and homeschool them laughed at and ridiculed. Many of us know this personally. Politicians and athletes and celebrities... ...who stop and give honor and praise and glory to God... ...they're laughed at and they're ridiculed... ...and they end up on Saturday Night Live... ...because it makes for a good joke. The world makes fun of death, of heaven, of hell... ...of sin, of the judgment seat of God... ...and it certainly makes fun of those who mourn. There's a passage in Revelation chapter 18... I was reading it this week to my children and as God is pouring out his wrath on Babylon which represents all evil of all humanity as he's pouring out his wrath listen to this John writes of Babylon of evil of the world in her heart she boasts there's not meekness there's pride in her heart she boasts I sit as queen I am not a widow now listen to this and this is in verse 7 and I will never mourn I will never mourn. That's what the world testifies to. That's what the citizens of the world testify to. But the believer knows the believer knows that the physical and spiritual death, that it's real and that we all must face it. The believer knows that every single person born of Adam will come before a holy God and see him as either judge or savior. We know this to be true. The believer knows that sin destroys everything in its path and its ultimate end is death, eternal death. The believer knows that eternity is real and every living human being at this moment is rushing toward it, heaven or hell. None of these realities go away by laughing. Not one. None of these realities go away by making a joke of it. The man, woman, or child who lives in light of these eternal truths, both for themselves and the world in which we live, cannot but mourn. That is the right response. Mourning is the right response. Christ is saying, look at your spiritual poverty and mourn. Christ is saying, look at the spiritual poverty of this world and mourn. What does he have to say about meekness? Let's look at the second point. You say, enough of the mourning already. Go on, move on to something else, please. in order to see these properly, we must see an order of operation. Christ starts with us being totally depraved, spiritual poverty. The right response to our spiritual poverty and the spiritual poverty of the world is mourning. And the right response to spiritual poverty and mourning is meekness, it's humility, it's being brought low. Why? Because we are low. That's the right response. He's not just picking these randomly. He's saying your spiritual poverty should produce mourning and your mourning should produce meekness. The word meek, praus, in the Greek, and it, it comes from a primary word which means mild, mild, or better put, by implication, to be humble of heart. And we're gonna thresh this out because we get this confused all the time. In the context here in which our Lord is speaking, it is identifying the character trait, the characteristic of a person, and how they relate to God and to one another. It's a relational definition. How do we see ourselves and relate to God? And how do we see ourselves and relate to people, to mankind? How? Pride cannot stand in light of spiritual poverty, and it cannot stand. Have you, ever, have you tried to be proud when you mourn? How does that work? It doesn't work. When you're mourning, you're low, right? When you examine your spiritual poverty, you're not... You don't know, well up with self-glorification and pride. You're brought low. And so meekness and humility in light of spiritual poverty and mourning will be the supernatural, not natural, the supernatural response. So let's be clear before I move on. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Meekness is not weakness. It's not being wishy washy. It's not being indecisive. It's not being timid. It's not being unsure. It's not lacking power. It's not lacking authority. It's not being a pushover. And it's not something natural. I've heard believers say, oh, someone is so meek and mild, and that's how they are. That may be the case, but that's not at all what Christ is talking about. He's not talking about someone's natural disposition of meekness or humility or shyness. I, I know dogs, I've met animals that have a disposition of meekness. That doesn't mean they're going to inherit the earth, right? It doesn't mean that they were supernaturally endowed by God to be meek dogs. That's just their temperament. But that's not what Christ is talking about at all. This meekness, listen closely, I'll give you a definition. This humility of which our Lord speaks is the product of the Holy Spirit in the heart of man. It is God-given. And D.A. Carson had the best definition. I love it. He said, meekness is a gift from God to see, listen to this, to see the interests of others advanced ahead of our own. What? Wait a minute. I thought we were talking about humility. I thought we were talking about mildness. Let me read it again. Meekness is a gift from God to see the interest of others advanced ahead of our own. And I love that because meekness is taken out of that self-centered, I'm so humble, I'm so meek, I'm so mild, and feet are put to it, and it takes action. Because the meek soul will live differently in relationship to God and other people than the person who is constantly glorifying themselves. And biblically, God-given meekness always takes action. It moves you. I'll give you a few. Abraham, Genesis chapter 13. He and Lot, too big, too many people, too many animals. He says, we got to split. Now, he's the older one. It's his nephew. It's Lot. Lot had some issues, right? Abraham could have said, listen, I'll pick my area and then you can take whatever's left. What does he do? Meekness. What does he do? He says, you choose. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. You choose. Meekness. He put Lot's interest above his own. Moses, Exodus 32. He comes down and what does he find? (laughs) Yes, Great perfect face, Patty. He finds the people have made a golden calf and they're worshiping the calf and saying, oh, you are the calf that brought us out of Egypt, right? What does Moses do? Get him, God. Get him right now. Is that what he says? No, that would not have been a meek response. Moses' response is supernatural. And he says, please forgive their sin, Lord. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. And he says, I will be their sacrifice. That's a humble spirit. That's not a glory starved, pride-filled person. One of the greatest examples, though, of the Old Testament has to be David in 1 Samuel 24. It's one that, I remember the first time I read it, I'm thinking, he's battling Saul. Saul's chasing him, right? He's at enmity with the king. And so David goes and he hides in a cave and God providentially informs Saul. Saul gets a bunch of his men and he goes to chase David. And lo and behold, they end up in the same cave. It's a great story. David's behind, right? And so they sleep. And what does David do? He goes up and his men are saying, get him, kill him now. And I'm thinking, kill him now, kill him. And David doesn't. Listen to what David does. You want to talk about meekness. Meekness. We're told that David crept unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. That's all he did. He cut off a corner. And here's the response. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. That's meekness. Power, the same time, could have taken his life. And yet saying, this is God's anointed. How dare I even cut off a piece of his robe? I can give you other examples, but I won't. The only true, the ultimate meek man was and is Jesus Christ. In fact, he's the only one with integrity that can say through and through, I am the meek one. You may be meek by God's gift, but I am the meek one. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me why. For I am gentle and humble, also meek in heart. And he says, you will find rest for your soul. How much of our Lord's life was spent being ridiculed? How much of his life was spent, certainly during his ministry, suffering persecution, hardship, much pain, much enmity between him and man? Not his doing, though. Isaiah said rightly, Isaiah 42 of Christ, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Why? He is the ultimate in meekness and what's so amazing to me in contemplating the humility and meekness of Christ is that this is the creator of the universe this is the almighty god this is the el shaddai jesus christ creator and yet as mankind spoke against him arrested him beat him and then killed him he never responded He was like a lamb before his shears. He remained silent at any moment. Remember what he said to Pontius Pilate? I can call down a legion of angels. At any moment, at any moment, he could have exercised his full divine power, but he did not. And what's so extraordinary is it reveals to us something that we still miss in this. Meekness, biblical meekness and power do not contradict each other. Biblical meekness and authority do not juxtapose each other. Christ is all powerful and the ultimate authority and he was ultimately meek. So those of you who have heard that meekness is weakness or meekness is being indecisive or weakness is lacking power, that's not a biblical teaching, that's a worldly teaching and that's why the world laughs at it and we should too. The Apostle Paul says, no, no, no. Christ was meek and powerful, and he calls us to be the same, meek and powerful, at the exact same time. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Your attitude should be, I love that, your beatitude, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But what did he do? He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, Paul says, that's your calling. That's hard. Because when I'm exercising my power, I'm not often meek. And when I'm meek, I'm not exercising my power. And I find the two confusing to myself. The Bible makes much of meekness. And it's appalling to me the degree to which the church does not live, exercise, or teach it. It's appalling to me the degree to which I am not meek as a man. I, you talk about struggles that we have. Meekness is one of my struggles because from a very early age it was be strong, be forceful, get your way, make your way. How often I find myself justifying my actions over a brother or sister. How often I find myself wanting to be right more than seeing the righteousness in a sister in Christ grow. The Bible says that our meekness, seeing our spiritual poverty, mourning rightly, should produce a desire to lift others up above ourselves. In the kingdom of this world where materialism reigns and the teaching is get whatever you can, as much as you can, and hold on to it as long as you can, Where it really is, and you know this, it's survival of the fittest. It's the first shall be first, not the last shall be first. It's demanded. Where each man and each woman sees himself or herself as the center of the universe. And another four billion people operating the exact same way. Is it any wonder we have trouble getting along? Not so in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, the meek man sees himself and everyone else being under God. Under God. The meek man is not proud of himself. He does not glory himself. He rightly sees that there's nothing in him by which he can boast. Nothing. And if there's anything good, citizens of the kingdom, listen. If there's anything good in you, anything right, anything pure, anything true that you see in you, it's God working in you. And therefore, if you're going to boast, you boast in who? You boast in the Lord. Because you say, that's not me. That's got to be of him. Even meekness, if you see meekness, it's of him. The meek man does not make demands of his position or his privilege or his right or his possessions or his status in life. Christ did not assert his position. He did not assert his authority. He did not even assert his justice, although he could have. And this is our calling as well. I got to tell you, in contemplating this, one of the worst aspects of the fall is the posture in which the non-meek man takes. This uh, hypersensitivity to oneself. Because meekness takes the attention off you and it puts it back on God. Lacking meekness, it's all about you again. And, 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 And in light of our culture today, I think one of the most grotesque examples a fallen man, and even within the church, a lack of meekness, is the hypersensitivity to me, to me. This constant, you know, when I taught with younger people, it was this obsession. What will people think? What will people say? What will people say about what I say? How am I dressed? Will they like how I'm dressed? Will they like me at all? Will they think that I'm smart? Will they think that I'm stupid? Will they think that I'm beautiful? Will they think that I'm ugly? Me, me, me. That's not meek. And yet how much in the church, how many of God's children think and talk and live the same way? How will I be perceived as a weakling, as insecure, as smart? Consumed with self, my wants, my needs, my desires, my hopes, my dreams, mine. John Bunyan, I love the man, just as succinct and simple as someone could put it. He said, he who is down, meek, need fear, no fall if you're down, you can't fall, right? If you're meek, you won't be worried about what you look like or what people think or what they're saying about you or not saying about you. You won't even think that. You're already made low in Christ. In fact, it'll be just the opposite. The one who is meek will be amazed that God and man think so well of them, treat them so well, are so kind You'll be amazed. Just the opposite. Is it any wonder that the meek do so well in relating to people and to God? The meek are gentle. The meek are not vengeful. The meek are patient and long suffering. The meek are ready to listen. Listen. They're ready to listen and they're ready to learn. And they have teachable spirits. Have you ever tried teaching someone who does, is not meek? How well does that go? Because they already know everything. Because they are all that already. And they can't learn anything from you. Or anybody else for that matter. We relate to those who are meek because they are gentle and not harsh. Because they're not trying to get ahead By using us. Because they're not trying to get revenge on us. Because they're not trying to use us in any way. The meek engage people. For the sake of people. The meek listen for the sake of listening. And they love for the sake of loving. Not to somehow figure out how I can use you to my betterment. So we see Christ say. Blessed are those who mourn and we see what mourning is it's our spiritual poverty. And we see Christ calling us to this meekness. But both if you're listening you say these are very dangerous teachings, pastor. In the world in which we live you're telling me you're calling me to mo- proper biblical mourning and you're calling me to biblical meekness and if I do both I'm in danger. Because the world laughs at those who mourn and certainly discourages if not teaches against biblical meekness. And so if I listen to Christ and I believe Christ and I live like this, then things are going to be hard. Why should I believe him and why should you believe me teaching what Christ taught? Last point, ready? How Christ can possibly say blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who meek. Both conditions are only blessed in Jesus. Okay? So don't take either of these as uh, ethical imperatives. I'm going to try really hard to mourn, and I'm going to try really hard to be meek. Because both are not taught like that, and both will fail. Meekness and mourning are blessed conditions only in Jesus Christ. How so? I'm sure that you've already noticed that with each beatitude... There's a specific, specific blessing attached to that beatitude. Right? So he talks, verse 4. He said, Blessed are those who are mourning. Blessed are those who are mourning their spiritual poverty. Why? They're blessed because in Christ they will be comforted. Right? It, it would be weird if he said, Blessed are those who mourn. Mm. You go, and? and nothing. It's just okay, mourn you become puritanical. You put on a long face. You know, you'd wear black all the time, put ashes on your head and wear sackcloth or stuff like that. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And our Lord is drawing, this is a, this is a messianic verse, you know that? He's drawing directly from Isaiah chapter 61. He's drawn from the Old Testament. And those who were listening knew what he was talking about. Isaiah chapter 61, he says, the prophet is talking of the Messiah... I have been anointed to preach good news to the poor. He, God, has sent me, Jesus, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and liberty for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord, favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. This is the Messiah. Jesus is teaching them, and they're going, Oh, we've heard that. That's Isaiah 61. He's the Messiah. He's telling us to mourn in him because he will comfort us. And when you're mourning, saints, and I don't need to tell you this. The only thing that you need is comfort. It's the thing that you need most. When you're mourning, you need comfort. We, turn, we, we try all these other things. We try food. We try entertainment. We try company. We try working really hard. I'm, really, I'm mourning, so I'm going to work harder. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. Every other thing other than finding divine comfort in Jesus Christ fails. If you've tried it and you're old enough, you know. If you're young, listen, this is wisdom. Don't be arrogant, be meek, and and learn. Right? The older people are going, "Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It doesn't work. Food doesn't work. Clothes do not work. The coffee doesn't work. My friends don't work. I need Christ. I need his comfort. Because Jesus Christ comes and he says, listen, on the cross, a hideous thing happened. And that I wasn't supposed to be there, you were supposed to be there. But I went instead of you and I mourned ultimately in hell. Christ experienced the ultimate mourning. Why? So that he could bring you comfort. And there's the beauty in it. On the cross He says, I will mourn eternally and infinitely for your sins so I can bring you eternally and infinitely comfort. And then he does that now. He does it now. He says, I have comfort for you now and I have comfort for you eternally. Really quickly, how now? When you come into the kingdom, he says, take off the sackcloth and here, here's oil of gladness. He brings us in and on a daily basis, as we rightfully mourn our sin, he replaces that mourning with gladness. Not superficial joy, not positive spirits of excitement, not lights and noise and music. Him, Christ, the Messiah. And then we do this On a daily basis for our whole life, right? How often are we supposed to confess our sins daily? And when you confess your sins, you're mourning. And when you're mourning, you're crying out to God to forgive you. And what does He do? He forgives you in Christ. And then what happens? There's a refreshing, there's a joy, a real joy, a deep joy. My wife and I, just this last week, we were praying together at night and we were confessing our sins, and there were some sins that needed to be confessed on both our sides. And as we were confessing, and as we were mourning, and as we were both weeping, this discipline of confession and prayer, God came in and washed. And at the end of it, it wasn't like this. We didn't walk away going, oh, we were restored. Why? What did John say? If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. He will cleanse of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness, purification, washing, cleansing, real joy. And that night, we slept well. We slept well. Now, does that mean we're done confessing? (laughs) No. Next day, at dinner, I said, listen, we got more confessing to do. At least I do. I'm not going to speak for you, but I do. So, we mourn every day. We confess every day. And every day, because of the work of Christ, he brings us comfort instead of the mourning. And that's the growth process, that's the sanctification process. How long has it been since you confessed your sins? And I'm not saying you need to confess. I'm saying, how long has it been since you've mourned your spiritual poverty and then been cleansed by Christ? But it's not just now, Jesus Christ offers us comfort eternally, eternal transformation his life, death, and resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ gives us a hope of a comfort that infinitely surpasses the comfort we have now in him. Infinitely, and I use that word in its most literal sense, because one day in the new heaven, on the new earth, when Christ comes to make all things new, when he comes in his glorious second coming, when he's riding on that white horse and all the angels and all the saints are with him, when he restores the heaven and the earth, the Bible says that he himself will wipe away your tears. He will do it. No more mourning, no more tears. I'll read it to you. Revelation 21. The dwelling of God will be with men. You could just stop right there because that's it. The dwelling of God will be with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Listen, to those of you who are mourning right now. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated in the throne said, I'm making everything new. That is a phenomenal declaration. So Christ says, I'm bringing you comfort now, but it pales in comparison to the comfort I have for you in eternity. Ultimate comfort in the presence of God in the presence of God, there will be that comfort. And that is the hope. The Bible says, fix your hope completely on the revelation to be brought to you when Christ comes, on his grace, on that comfort. You know what that means now, saints? You know that this mourning is only for a time. For those of you who have mourned recently the loss of a loved one, ultimately that pain, that mourning will be taken away by Christ. For those of you who have mourned the brokenness of a relationship that was once so good and so sweet and now is so bad, that mourning, Christ says, I will bring healing and comfort permanently to it. No more mourning of our sins because there will be no more sin in his presence washed clean, white as snow. I ask you honestly what other comfort is there? What else is there? Everything other than Christ you've tried and you failed. Have you ever tried to comfort someone who's mourned the loss of a loved one who did not know Christ and has entered into eternity and has already been in a sense judged and is already experiencing? Have you ever tried comforting someone like that? What do you say? Because I've tried. I've done funeral services for those. What do you say? It'll all work out. It won't work out. The only comfort we have is in Christ and the gospel itself. Don't offer false comfort to those who do not believe, and do not offer false comfort to yourself. The comfort comes in the presence of Christ. Without Jesus, any morning you have that is temporarily relieved by food or clothes or friends or entertainment will return. And I want you to know this, it's a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of the morning that will be experienced in hell, the absence of God forever and ever. And it's articulated in scripture as a mourning. every moment of every day expressed in the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's real. The Christian can hear Jesus say, those who mourn are blessed and not think he's out of his mind because the Christian knows that those who mourn can rejoice at the exact same time and that's not a contradiction. So Jesus says, I will comfort those who mourn and for those who are meek as a result, you'll inherit the earth. Now, this passage, this verse has been so twisted over the centuries. I mean, twisted badly, but it's not a confusing verse. I mean, the first thing you'd have to ask is, you know what? I'm hoping right now, you know, when we think, when we think of inheritance, many young people today, inheritance is just hoping they'll inherit their parents' debt, right? I mean, the way we live today, it's going to be, am I going to get these credit card bills? I mean, is that going to come my way? If you're a little more blessed than that, you're hoping maybe for, you know, maybe a piece of jewelry, maybe a car, maybe a little bit of money, Right? But Christ says here, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What? The earth. A little bit better than a car. What did he mean? Once again, Old Testament reveals this perfectly. And those listening knew. The 37th Psalm, verse 11. And Jesus is quoting this. A little while, and the wicked will be no more, the psalmist writes. Though you look for them, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. And you could translate our verse in similar fashion. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. In other words, they will inherit the land. What land? Promised land. What's in the promised land? You say, milk and honey and peace and prosperity. Oh, and God. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the land in which God dwells. Blessed are the meek, for the promised land is theirs, and that is where God dwells. And he shall be our God, and we shall be his people forever and ever. And to all those broken masses sitting on the mountainside that day, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They, they, didn't, they didn't go off and go, oh, I'm going to be rich, I'm going to retire. They, they knew that wasn't it. To inherit the earth was a Jewish proverbial saying that meant a great blessing. And in the context here, the ultimate blessing, which was heaven. It was the promised land. Not this little strip in the Middle East, but the promised land. New heaven, new earth, God. Him. Going all the way back to Genesis 15, Abraham was banking on the inheritance of the promised land. When they were wandering throughout the desert... They were banking on the promised land. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, it says their hopes were crowned when they took possession of the land. Finally, they're in. They're in. And Jesus uses this teaching in this context to reveal to them and to us that those who are made meek, those who mourn, those who see their spiritual poverty in Christ will inherit heaven, eternity, the very presence of God. And only the genuinely meek now can go through life, given all the circumstances, and live in such a way that they're not constantly striving to get the next thing, to be, you know, better than the person sitting next to them. In fact, it's just the opposite. Those who are meek in Christ know, they know they deserve nothing, and yet they already have everything. You want to talk about a paradox? Paradox. The meek in Christ know I deserve nothing. Actually, that's not true. I deserve hell, but I have everything. There are two small verses. I'm going to read them to you, and then you can mark them down later, and remember these. Paul, in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul says this. Listen. He describes this meek state well. He says, We are sorrowful, yet rejoicing. We are poor, yet making many rich. Have nothing and yet possess everything. And then in 1 Corinthians 3, again, to the faithful, he says, All things are yours. The world, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours. And you're in Christ, and Christ is of God. In other words, he's saying, Christian, you can afford to be meek. Christian, you can afford to be last. Kingdom of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you can afford to put other people above yourself. Why? Because you have everything. You have everything in Christ. You lack nothing in Christ right now. And one day, even though you're laughed at and ridiculed and persecuted, this beatitude will be ultimately fulfilled, and you will inherit the earth. The Bible says one day you'll rule over it. I love talking to my kids about ruling over angels. They can't get that. They go, angels, these are the people we see in scripture and we fall down, right? And they say, don't fall down before me. And Josh, he goes, we're gonna rule over angels? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. There's an example in our own history, and I'll use this and we'll close, I promise. He's saying, come on, stop talking, Pastor. Sorry. Abraham Lincoln was a, a God-fearing, gospel-centered man. If you've read a biography or an autobiography, he, didn't, he wrote some stuff. If you read anything on him, you know the degree to which this man lived a godly life. Abraham Lincoln was also ugly physically. His physical appearance was, was homely. Um, and, but he's been defined by historians as one of the most meek, humble presidents ever to serve. Someone once called him two-faced and he said, if I were two-faced, would I be wearing this one? Because he saw himself as ugly. He was ridiculed for his appearance. He was ridiculed for his love for God and his allegiance to Christ. He was ridiculed for how he would mourn and weep during a time in which our country was tearing itself apart during the Civil War. He was ridiculed for The mourning, the institution of slavery—it was amazing this man's heart. In fact, he was practicing law with a man man by the name of Edwin Stanton. They practiced law together, and Edwin Stanton would ridicule him in public debates. He would actually call him a gorilla in public debates. But Abraham Lincoln lived meek in Christ. And he did it in such a way where those who criticized him, he still saw them as Christ desired him to see them. So much so that when Abraham Lincoln became president, Edwin Stanton was appointed by Lincoln as the Secretary of War. And many of us could say, what are you doing? This man hates you. This man was mean to you. This man said things he shouldn't have said. And Abraham Lincoln, after being badgered by it, said, I chose Stanton simply because he is the best man for the job. That's meek. Can you imagine that happening today in our political system? Mm -mm. He recognized a person's worth no matter how that person had treated him or hurt him or ridiculed him. Meekness in action. Stanton and everyone else who came to know Lincoln soon came to forget about his looks and saw who he was on the inside. So much so... That when Lincoln was shot, Stanton, the man who once called him a gorilla looked at the president's rugged face and said through tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. It was Lincoln's love for God and love for man. It was, he was remembered not for his looks, not for his position, not for his power, but for his mourning and his meekness. What a thing to be remembered by where your eulogy encompassed those phrases. This person was meek. This person mourned the spiritual poverty of themselves and the world in which we live. 20 billion trillion years from now, into eternity, God's people will still be rejoicing that these beatitudes will be literally fulfilled. Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for you shall inherit the earth. Mourning and meekness, Foolishness in the eyes of the world, but blessed states for all those who believe in Christ. Do you believe that? To the degree that you do, mourning and meekness in the biblical sense will begin to define you as a person as well. And it will change how you relate to God and to one another. And in so doing, you will bring glory to Christ. Let's pray. Hmm. Father, I know that even in light of today's culture, these teachings are counterintuitive and certainly countercultural. You're calling us to a life, Lord, that the world will laugh at and in fact hate. You're calling us, Lord, to be cognizant of our sin, to mourn over it, to repent from it, and to turn from it. You're calling us to live meek in the midst of people who treat us poorly and who want our demise. And then you tell us, Lord, that you will comfort us when we mourn and that if we are meek in you, that there will be a grand inheritance of the promised land in your presence. I pray, Father, that we would would know that these teachings are true. That we wouldn't justify them away or rationalize them away. But we would see, Father, these are kingdom principles for your children. Those you brought into the kingdom already by your grace through the blood of Christ. I pray in light of that, Father, that we would have great wisdom to mourn the sin that's in our life and turn from it, to mourn this fallen creation that was so good and has gone so bad, that we, in light of our spiritual poverty and our mourning, would be meek, that we wouldn't be so concerned about how we look and how we think and what people say. we be more concerned about you and others. Give us this sight, for we don't have it on our own, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in us in this way. In Christ's holy name, amen.